everyone. Thanks for tuning in to Power Athlete Radio. It takes far more energy to unlock someone's creativity than it does to tell them what to do. These are the wise words from a man who struggled himself to find an appropriate outlet for his passion, his personal values, and nerdy interests. Ben Crookston, founder of Train Heroic, eventually decided that the best way for him to find fulfillment was to create that outlet himself. While this seems like a courageous and risky act, Ben explains that risk is inevitable in everything we do, and that shifting societal norms are the reason people shy away from creating in the first place. It's this kind of soft thinking that prevents passionate individuals from achieving the exact one thing they desire, impacting the world around them for the better. How can we combine our unique experiences and talents to achieve just that? Step one, stop comparing yourself to other people who are not you. Step two, listen to this episode. Here it is, episode 341. Mr. Positivity. Ben, you look great. Oh, thanks, man. Um, no, Ben, nice to connect with you. It's only been a couple of weeks since we last were graced with your presence. and I still we, miss you. It's, it's just, been long enough. It feels like yesterday, but also a year ago that we embraced in a bro hug, chest to chest, uh, whispering sweet nothings into one another's ears as you and your team scurried off into a lift, a maroon pickup truck, if I recall, uh, taking you to the airport. Well, uh, you know, I'm glad that I had the same impression on you that it did on me because I remember every detail and it oh. feels just like that. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for taking me breaks. back there. No problem. Yeah. <laughs> what were you doing with Quilkin? Ben and I touched tummies before he left. Tummy touch? Mm-hmm. 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 Not to be confused with tummy sticks. What's, What's that? Tummy stick? <laughs> it's PG show people. Well, not really. <laughs> tummy stick. Hell damn and ass. Call and bounce. <laughs> um. No, man, thanks for hopping on. And I guess, how many, you've been on three or four times? I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't I'm, know. I'm going to go for the top spot, whatever that is. There's like, the, um, how there many is times, a lot of competition. So how many times did you, I know you and, wasn't it you and Spitz were on in like the old Costa Mesa office? Uh, Colb. Colb. Yeah, I think Colby, uh, uh, I don't know if Josh did one with us. If not, you guys, you're missing out. I think uh, you and Josh Such, were such a shows. Yeah, I think we were. And then I definitely did one solo and now I'm solo and I feel alone, but um, safe in your comfort. Beautiful. As yeah. all guests do, the, yeah. the proverbial cradle of power athlete radio sways to and fro so gently, so gently. <laughs> it's a technique I've learned from cradling a baby which my version of cradling is actually like palming a basketball. <laughs> you want to make them feel your fingertips so they know you're there. That's safe. And you have more control. Yeah, exactly. Less likely to fumble. If you just, so text baby advice. If you're just kind of softly holding a baby, they might forget you're there. So you squeeze them real hard. And when they cry, they know they're saying like, hey, thanks. That's what I was taught at least. Volume and intensity. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. See, McQuilkin, you got it. Basically parenting. I I did. I'm babysitting approved, but for boys like i got nephews so i think my friend handed him off his son for a night was cool but now the girls i don't know what the hell to do because you can't play hot wheels and just crash mm-hmm. and just beat each other up so i have no idea i think it's the same thing with ponies uh, i mean with i'll pony keep crash posted. yeah smashing ponies <laughs> together okay 
Easy. But Ben, sorry, let's say we just got a new listener, which is probably possible because the, the show is growing so rapidly and as my parents go to holiday parties. Hold up Ben's last episode, 297, hmm. uh, a year ago. No, no way, really? See, I almost said the F word. Can't do that in Simpsons. So Ben, the point being of this, this unnecessarily drawn out wormhole is Tell the listeners about yourself and how we know one another. Oh, that's an uncomfortable question. Um, okay, uh, I am, let's see, the founder of Train Heroic. That's probably what I'm most known for, if anything. Um, and today, uh, I oversee product development. I mean, we perceive product in a pretty holistic way, um, but I love to build and make things and connect with others and hopefully deliver some value in this world. Um, so let's see for the random listener who might not use power athletes methodologies in any way, uh, we proudly have supported power athlete for about four years now, um, and have seen you guys grow, I think 50 fold over. Um, and so it's been, I think a fun thing to kind of just go on that journey together and think, uh, being partners with you guys has certainly challenged us to continually step up our game. And then, uh, hopefully it cuts both directions. That's what I'm hoping. Well, here's what I can commit to you. I will continue to challenge every every angle of your product and your experience. Yeah. I've got, we've got lofty goals, Benny. Yeah, we've I got know. Lofty goals, and we're we're here to support those goals. That's right. And so, in it, let's say you're just kind of a peripheral listener, and you're like, "Hey, what is this power thing?" You guys know that we offer we offer daily training plans. We're not just a podcast. No. <laughs> Although it would be a lot easier if we were. Oh. But uh, the people, we've got a catalog of daily training that is delivered to your palm of your hands thanks to Ben's vision and how, man, I remember the early days is like, if we're not easier than paper, then we're not doing our job. That was like the, a very early kind of vision. And at that time I, I was like, I was using a note, like a little notebook, you know? And I, I think I still have it. Probably you're a hoarder. <laughs> yeah. Oh dude, I got a problem. But now <laughs> it like, it, and maybe back then, Ben, it, it wasn't easier yeah. than paper. <laughs> That's what a vision is. You grow into the vision. <laughs> but man, now it is. And yeah. it, like it truly, I, it is, it, I can't imagine when I push, when I push my friends who you would think these are like my closest buddies would be following this shit. But when I push them, that's our, our product now. They're just, their, their jaw drops with the experience. I don't know what they follow things from magazines. They go on Instagram, duh, duh, duh. but the, the tracking and delivery of the workouts is like you say, we've grown 50 fold. I think alongside you. So it's really yeah. cool to see the product uh, where it's at now. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's been a journey. Um, and I think like at, at the core, that's a big part of our belief set. Um, and I think like, you know, coming away, even, you know, we were fortunate enough to go to y'all's, uh, power athlete symposium, which I tell people all the time. I'm like, if you're not going to that, I'm not sure what you're doing. Right. If you're a committed athlete or coach and you're looking to get better in any facet of your life, mind, body, soul, uh, you gotta get there. And we were fortunate enough to go there. And I thought it was super cool to see you guys kind of reframe the event underneath kind of the whole theme of self-development and this idea that like people are growing and 
Uh, I think that's been one of the things that has binded us certainly is, is that belief. Um, and if you look at the kind of the brand architecture of Train Heroic and you're like, yes, it, it certainly had a vision that was outsized uh, for what it started as resource-wise and otherwise, uh, capability, knowledge, everything. We were just totally not ready to do what we wanted to do, but we knew what that world looked like um, from the very beginning. And I think there are a couple interesting pieces, and one of which is, you know, even just the name Train Heroic, um, that is, uh, it's a funny thing, because from a branding perspective, it's pretty much a no-no. You don't want to have a brand that has three syllables. It's just hard to say. It doesn't roll off the tongue. Google. What about five syllables? Uh, now, if you push it, yeah, if you push it to the <laughs> other extreme, uh, it's good. So like 50 syllables, even better. You just don't want to be caught in the middle where we are. <laughs> um, but really, I mean, it's, it's kind of a funny story how we started that. Um, so I, I grew up and um, I've been a weird guy um, from the very beginning. And I think if I reflect back in a lot of what, uh, you know, you go to the, the symposium, and you think back, like, how did we end up here? And where, like, how did we mishmash all this stuff together? And I think the story for a lot of people at Train Rogue who work here and a lot of people who, frankly, uh, partner with us. Um, and we just kind of feel like, hey, we're really connected on some weird level. Um, like our vision, when said collectively, is like we are building a world where millions of connected heroes find joy in the journey of training. And every, every word within that is like very intentionally selected. Um, you know, we're talking about millions of people. We're doing this at scale. That's the only level at which we're interested in having an impact. We deeply believe in the power of connection. And we're, we don't think about training programs or programming or workouts or data. Like all these things are simply means to an end. And the end is creating tighter connections and better relationships between coaches and the athletes they serve. Um, and we talk about finding joy in the journey of training. Like we don't want training to be an all out bummer. We think training should be pretty cool. It could be fun even dare I say. Um, and so I think we've always approached it from that lens. And then like the, the genesis of even the word train heroic, I think is pretty random. Like when I was a little kid, I was obsessed with superheroes. I grew up as Michelangelo from the Ninja Turtles for a whole year straight. My mom made me this insanely cool homemade fully stuffed gigantic muscles costume. And I just didn't take the damn thing off. Um, and so if I look back at my life and see all these seeds planted, um, some of where I am today makes sense. I was, in fact, like last week, I, I was reading Chuck Palahniuk's book, Diary, which is a weird one, as much of this stuff is. But there's a recurring uh, message in there. And he, he keeps saying, uh, everything we do is a self-portrait. And it's really interesting to think back at that and to look at your own personal values to look at your own personality, to look at your own unique experience and really mesh those things together and be like, okay, well, who am I when I consider those things that makes me distinct and potentially valuable to this world? What is my unique edge gift, whatever you want to call that? And how do I give that to people? Um, and that's hopefully I think what we're doing here at train rug is, uh, you know, my background, I, my first, my probably only immediately natural talent was I was, I was good at doing things that required patterns. So I was really good at art and I was good pretty much at math and I was good at telling story. All of those things are like things that involve creating patterns and seeing them and putting them together. Um, and I 
I was okay as an athlete and I wanted to be really good. So I took what I was naturally good at. I put that stuff like totally off the side and I went like all in on being an athlete. And I got like pretty good at that over time with enough work um, for sure. Um, but what I learned was uh, I didn't fit in any world. Um, I was always weird. I always felt like a bit of an outcast. Um, and I, I don't think anybody who like grew up with me would necessarily perceive it. Um, I was like too much of an athlete to hang out with the artist people. So I'd go to like art fairs and things like that. I'd go to my art classes and be like, oh, you're too, too much of an athlete to do that. Um, and then when I would go to my athletic things and I was trying to get recruited playing football, I was like too much of an academic, too much of an artist, too much of a weirdo to really fit into that mold. And I would constantly be in many ways, like putting on the mask and I would feel like, Oh, I got to show up this way when I'm with these people, I got to show up with this, with these people. And I think what's been really beautiful with train heroic is um, it's kind of a pure manifestation of, of all of our weirdness because mm -hmm. the people who work here tend to be, have a background as an athlete, uh, potentially a coach as well, um, have a deep interest in self-development, right? Our mantra is be your best. And it's all about being your best in every facet of your life, being your best as a person, being your best as a family member, being your best as a technician, at, uh, whatever you're practicing in your domain. Um, and, and certainly being, you know, having the highest level of character you possibly can. Um, and within what we do, we're combining all of our natural weirdness. So we have people who are really good at math and engineering and design and, and telling stories, but also happen to be athletes. So a lot of us misfits kind of got together and I think it all kind of makes sense. And the idea behind Train Heroic and why the name itself, long tangent, um, was because early on, actually in high school, when I was still really into telling story and whatnot, I probably had read one total book. Uh, in high school, but my aunt gave me a book um, called A Hero with a Thousand Faces by, by, by a guy named Joseph Campbell, who, for those listeners who don't know, is kind of the world's foremost authority on mythology. He's kind of like a philosophy guy, mythology guy. And what, what he did is he looked at all of the stories across the world throughout like history. He studied different cultures, different times. And it was like, what is common about these stories? You know, again, what patterns are consistent and he created an archetype and a, a, a framework effectively that he calls the hero's journey. And that hero's journey, um, if you look at, you know, anything from like the oldest, most popular stories, certainly when you look at religion, you look at uh, Buddhism and Christianity and uh, Islam, all of these stories fit a similar paradigm. And those stories fit the same paradigm that really popular movies do. So you look at like Harry Potter or the Matrix and some of these really things that just have huge uh, kind of appeal to people, they appeal on a very kind of universal uh, level. And uh, Campbell's kind of position was they appeal on a universal level because they follow a universal construct. And that construct is actually reflective of the journey we go through as individuals. And so not only are these like, you know, the archetypical heroes, but all of us are heroes in our own lives. And we're all going through those, those same journey where we, are called to action by whatever it is, right? Something pulls us in a certain direction. It could be our own curiosity. It could be somebody literally asking us. We leave what we know as the comfortable world. We go into kind of this unknown world that's inherently uncomfortable, filled with challenge, going into the wilderness, 
Um, and then we go there, we are somehow, you know, there's the death and the rebirth that always happens in these stories. You see that with Neo, you see that with Harry Potter, you see that with Jesus Christ, you see, and across all these stories, there's some sort of death and then rebirth. And in Campbell's model, right, and like these stories, oftentimes they use plot as the device to convey that. And so you see this tangible, concrete representation. But in the end, it's actually a, an inner journey that the whole story, the journey is about. And it's about how do we uh, overcome ourselves? How do we overcome our own egos and the belief that we are apart from the world, die as individuals, and then get connected with the world around us. And when we are dying and reborn, we are, we bring back some sort of truth, some sort of gift. Um, so while that seems pretty far off, that's actually what the name train heroic came from. And so as marrying my love for training and athletics with this idea that all of us are on a personal journey of development. And for me, one of the most, you know, valuable vehicles of my own self-development was in the physical world, like banging weights and chasing things and trying to get better. And so, well, I think there's a million different vehicles for self-development. I think the physical one is a very immediate tool that we can all use. And so that's the gift we try to give every day. And that's a bit of the background on how we got here. That's a lot of thinking. And that's what I've always appreciated about Ben, <laughs> honestly. And uh, I, my default has very much been in, I mean, Ben, we've talked on the side on some of this stuff that I'm personally working on, but like has just been go like, like a dog chasing a car, the, the, the old Joker line from Batman and then get the car and then find another car and go. Um, but then when you do slow down and like, for me, I got, it's, it has to be having a kid, right? Like that's has to ha have been what has like created an inflection point where all of a sudden it's like the Zoolander, who am I? You know, like yeah. I, I know, I know, I know, but I can't articulate it. And uh, I'm, I'm curious, man, how much of this has been planned in terms of how these things have been aligned and how much have, have you realized that it was just you going and you kind of laying your own bed, breadcrumbs without looking back and then one day stopping and going, huh, that's why I'm here today. I've never considered it. Um, that's a good question. I would love to say I planned it. Uh, I didn't, mm -hmm. I didn't at all. Um, I think, you know, if you're like trying to figure out you know, when we talk about be your best, the, the middle piece that is very interesting, right? Um, the, your piece, because your best is different than somebody else's. And we talk about like, don't be, you know, a second rate version of somebody else, be the first rate version of yourself. And if you're truly being your best, like that's a, that's a thing that nobody else can be because you have a very unique background. Um, and so I think I was fortunate enough and lucky enough to be kind of have two things. Uh, one, like a degree of stubbornness and kind of like contrarianism that allowed me to just kind of swim upstream from society. Like basically anything people told me, I was like, uh, that doesn't make sense to me. Why would I do that? Like, you know, even getting a job out of college, they'd be like, Hey, you do this, this is a great job. And I'm like, why is that a great job? And they're like, well, you could do this. And then eventually you can save up enough and then you can pay for this. And I'm like, but I don't even like to do any of those things. I would spend the majority of my time doing things I don't like. And so I, I was, I think I had a certain amount of stubbornness and like a, a quest for truth and authenticity um, where like, I just, I can't help it. It's kind of like own personal disease. Like I couldn't do those jobs if you wanted me to. Um, 
And then I think the second thing is like, I have a reasonable intuition that allowed me to kind of sense some things I might be able to do that other people might not be able to do. And it's like, I'm not the best at anything in the world, not even close, but I happen to just be just weird enough in certain areas where you combine those things. And suddenly you're like, okay, you're okay at that thing now because it's so, it becomes so specialized. It's like, well, how much do you know about technology and how much do you know about art and how much do you know about telling stories and how much do you know about building brands and how much do you know about training and how many, like, how good are you at connecting with people and how, how much do you like actually leading people and how much do you actually like to play with math and business models? It's like, I don't know. There's not that many people who love to do all those things. So it puts you in a pretty small, you know, you're playing a game against like three, five people in the whole world. You're like, okay, my odds are so like much better. Um, and I think a lot of that was luck, but part of it was like, frankly, that's just the stuff I love to do. And I just found like early on people, you know, encourage you socially to always make a choice. And, and there's a lot of false dichotomies, like do this or do this, do this or do this. And I've always been kind of an and guy where I'm like, I don't see why I can't do both of those at the same time. And they're like, well, there's not a thing for that. And you're like, I'll make one. You know, when I went to college, uh, there's a, there's a funny story, a Jim Harbaugh story. So I got recruited by Jim Harbaugh at the university of San Diego. And I really wanted to play like big time, you know, power five D one football. That was like my childhood dream. Wanted to do it super bad. Um, I'm a super average guy in virtually every way. I'm average height. I'm average weight. I'm average looking. I'm average everything. And to that end, like I didn't really stand out. What I was like over indexing for is I was really good at working harder than other people. And I was like smart enough to like play well and like play a game that a style that like I had. Um, and so I did get recruited, but then I am getting hurt a few times my senior year and the bigger offers kind of like fell off the table and I was pretty bummed. Um, and then I was like, should I play? Should I not? And I was getting recruited by a lot of mid tier programs, a lot of like Ivy league programs, D one double a programs. And, uh, I took a visit to Brown university and at Brown university, one of the things that was super appealing was like, when I was talking to their guidance counselors, they're like, you don't have to pick a major here. You can design your own, whatever you want to study, you can study, we'll authorize it and support it. And I'm like, this is the best place in the world world like because I hate school and I don't like doing what I'm told and I don't understand the arbitrary curriculums that people build out like I could build my own that's amazing so two weeks later you know keep in mind it snowed three feet while I was visiting Brown and I hated snow and I liked warm weather and I grew up living in Chicago and I was like I gotta get out of here two weeks later I go on a visit to University of San Diego and I'm talking to coach Harbaugh and this is his his second year at USD and he's just selling vision, right? That's his deal. And he's charismatic and he's amazing in that way. Uh, and he's like, what do you want to study? And I was like, I, I'm like, well, at Brown, you know, I can kind of do whatever I want and I can kind of piecemeal this thing together because I'm interested in all these different things. And he's like, oh, we, you can do that here too. <laughs> and I was like, really? And he's like, yeah, absolutely. Like tons of people do that. And I was like, that's, that's phenomenal. And then he takes me on a tour and do everything. And it happens to be 85 degrees and everything's gorgeous there. And I'm like, done deal. This place is amazing. I'm in. And then I get to campus and you're going through orientation and whatnot. I'm like, yeah. So coach Harbaugh says I can design my own major here, full independent study track. And they're like, you can't do that. And I'm like, what? <laughs> so, um, I had a rough go, I think in that way. Um, but yeah, I like, I think in that way, like, 
the journey you're on is a journey that only makes sense for you. And uh, there's always a path that can be paved that's unique so long as you are, you know, somewhat, whether it's intuitive or whether you're explicitly articulating it. You know, and I think today, like I've been able to explicitly articulate who am I, why am I those things, right? Socrates, know thyself. It's like, it's a super valuable thing. Um, and unfortunately, I would say in particular to Western culture, we basically are told to wake up and go, right? A path is established. They lay out very specific tracks for us. And then it's much easier to run into those tracks and just try to feel like which of these tracks make sense to me versus just making your own tracks. Um, and so to varying degrees, we're always sacrificing a piece of our own gift when we, when we take upon a path that other people have blazed. Um, and yeah, so I, I think it's like, honestly, it's not been an easy thing. It's been hellaciously hard. It's been painful trying to figure out who I am and try to figure out how to make, uh, you know, make my gifts be valuable to the world and try to fit, figure out like what I'm also terribly bad at and get better people around me so that they can cover my weaknesses. Um, but it's been also the most rewarding thing I could possibly do um, because today, basically, you know, I am so excited to do what I do every day that like I jump out of bed I can work on way less sleep than a normal person. And I, I literally think about what I'm doing every minute of the day. And I don't hate that. Like people think you're like, Oh, you're working a lot. I'm like, am I like, basically I wake up, I build cool models. I do creative work. I get to work with an unbelievable team of people that is super passionate about what they do. We get to serve coaches and work in athletics. So like it kind of just works. Um, and if there's like, let me vouch real quick. Cause if there's listeners like, Oh, Ben just bullshit. And this is like recruiting episode. It, it's not, I don't even know. I mean, there was some obligatory, it wasn't even obligatory, sincere, but perceived obligatory, like compliments of one another's brands and products. Like I, I said, this at symposium for those who were there, the people that we are, we are involved with are things we used before we mm -hmm. ever were approached per se. Um, with, I guess the exception of train row. Cause we didn't even know it was out there. But like you guys are our friends and when yeah. you do go there and your staff, like they, that's, it's real, man. Like it's, yeah. it's pretty interesting and cool place to, to, to work. And a lot like us, you know, I feel like your people from on every level, probably like if you were to ask them, like what came first, you or the brand, they probably would have a hard time delineating it because they kind of like they, they bleed the black and yellow per se right like yeah it's, it's, and it's, a, it's a weird thing like the, the number one response that comes from employees when we talk to them uh like we'll bring in new employees and it's like one month in two months in, we kind of interview them and be like okay how's it going like what were your expectations when you came here and like how's it now today and the thing that i hear people say the most is they just say like i feel home and I feel like I, I can be myself finally. I'm doing something that I want to do. And like, I mean, dude, we're, we're a shitty small startup, right? Like, don't get it twisted for a second. We don't have some huge capital account that we're pulling from. We have limited resources. We have great investors who have supported us. But we're like anybody else. We got limited constraints. And I would say the majority of people that are here have taken a 25% pay cut from mm -hmm. what they could get in the market. Sure. And... You know, I, I don't, I would never uh, take that for granted. Like the sacrifice people make to do what we do here um, because they're believing in and committed to delivering 
an impact in this world. And then frankly, also doing work that they know will intrinsically make them a better person, a better craftsman, whatever it is. Um, I think it's, that's what makes it all make sense and kind of worth it. Um, because there's, I mean, don't get me wrong, dude. I don't want any of that stuff to sound any sort of certain way to people because, you know, there are plenty of times where you're like, what the hell am I doing? Mm-hmm. You know, this is so unbelievably hard, but you know, the, the weight you're lifting is a weight you selected. You put it on the bar yourself. And there's a real difference when you do that, right? When somebody's not just throwing something upon you, but you're saying, no, no, I want that weight. I'm going to go try to lift it. You're like, okay, it didn't work out, but at least I chose it. And I had the autonomy to do that. And I'm developing mastery in a manner that like makes sense to me. And this is aligned to some sort of like purpose that I really care about. Um, so it's, yeah, I think it's a different deal. So do you think, you know, going to the backpedaling a little bit, because I have some other thoughts, but I'll maybe circle back to it. I don't know. Backpedaling a little bit to, you know, following following someone else's trail, right? And versus blazing your own type deal. Um, number one, I, I, there's got to be a stat. How many coaches are were like former athletes, whether strength coaches or sport coaches? The majority, is it fair to say? I would say 90%. Ben, do you have any feel on that? Totally verified, corroborated stat. I think Gartner did that research, right, Tex? I'm, I'm kidding. I have no idea. <laughs> how would you? Yeah, I have no idea how to possibly know that. Okay, that based off of correct, right? We serve thousands and thousands of coaches, and most of them, when you talk to them about why they're doing what they're doing, they're like, "This changed my life. I want to change, use it to change others." It's but, like a pretty simple thing. Yeah. But here's the thing: being an athlete is simply just following orders, isn't it? Right. It's, it's doing, I think it really depends. My coaches would never have told you that I did that. Um, (laughs) That's why they did not like me a lot of times. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, not necessarily. And I'm not trying to, I guess I, I I am to start the conversation oversimplifying it, but it's leading to discussion points to go. But then it all depends on the coach, the type of coach that mm-hmm. demands that of the athlete simply follows mm-hmm. order, not to say they're good or bad, right? I imagine there's a lot of successful coaches that simply ask that of their athletes. But then yeah. you have very transformational, not to say the do this is transactional, but then there are coaches that see the vision beyond what is representative of that four years. They're looking for the best of the athlete to put them in a position, whether they play college ball or not for this four years, I don't care how you do. We're going to develop you into a young man or young woman. But then there's coaches that do this. I've done this, do this. Well, and and that's like, that's, it's not just a dichotomy, right? There's lots of gray area, but for the most part, a sport coach's job is to devise the strategy communicate it to the athlete so that they can execute mm-hmm. and very simply put, and like, I know there's shades of gray athletes do what the coaches say mm-hmm. in some facet, right? But it's on the coach to determine how to communicate it. And a, a creative coach would have to be working with Mr. Crookston to formulate a very complex social environment so that you could potentially maneuver and manipulate him to at least half the time align with the system, <laughs> right? An example, I imagine Arian Foster, right? Similar 
athletic ability as Ben Crookston here, but basically starred as a freshman running back at Tennessee, was rookie of the year within the conference as a running back, but had very philosophical mind. Coaches didn't view that as positive, ride him to third string, undrafted free agent. Once he has the opportunity to express and be himself, find success with the Texans. But so, so Tex, how much of that, uh, like, I love the fact that you bring up like the coach's personality type is certainly, and leadership style is a part of that. How much that also, you know, cause I don't, I don't know what, what our lens here that we're looking through is, but how much of it also changes sport to sport? How much is it is embedded into certain cultures? Well, if football in itself is a, a if then sport, right? We get opportunities to be creative within the field. So when the play goes awry, then we see athleticism come out, right? Uh, Lamar Jackson right now, or uh, a QB scrambling, but then you have freedom sports. So we see it with the, the current NBA style is less X's and O's and more athleticism. And then you have soccer and lacrosse that there are set plays, but there's freedom and creativity within those sports. So my, let me push back, Tex, peel that back down to the youth versions of those sports. Right. But then there are the, the fundamentals, and this is the beauty. This is why I love Division Three, because they lean so hard on fundamentals and the true representation of the sport. But every once in a while, you get an athlete that falls to a team because of grades or situation or circumstance, or they're late bloomers. And then you have this meeting of athleticism with the fundamentals and that's solely based off my just experience at the division three level but the it's it's one and the same but then you have still professional coaches and athletes at all sports at all levels that still lean on the fundamentals and we we can probably ask john to speak to the the drop back and the steps and the placement, the open, the the pulls and all the things that they still practiced at his professional practices to begin each season. So it, I imagine the fundamentals never leave. And then those good coaches still rely on that who don't have the athletes that can overcome their faults or their mistakes with their athletic ability. Right, mm-hmm. going back to old school CrossFit football and the the mo factor, the margin of error. It's our responsibility as a strength and conditioning coach, and on the other side of the field, to put our athletes in the best position to increase their margin of error, meaning that they let make less mistakes because they're hoping for that off day that Tiger has or that off day that LeBron has, and they make the correct step. He, LeBron, has the ability to overcome the mistake with his athletic ability, but a lot of the athletes in which our coaches work with do not. So it's the opportunity to increase their margin of error by making the correct steps no matter what, right? Fall to our level of our training. So I guess point being the construct of a youth athlete whose identity is steeped in their sport is very, in most cases relying on the direction and instruction of a coach. Yeah. So which I'm getting to is like, it's probably the majority of time, whether you're, you know, listeners are parents of, of young athletes or maybe your coaches, like 
going through this process of the, the who am I, right? Know thyself. Y- you don't have an opportunity because the coach just tells you what to do. And it's just a lot. D- do you get into a pattern where it's, a, you know, it's just a lot easier to be told what to do. And that's yeah. why uh, the majority of people out there are turkeys. That's not a bad thing. We need turkeys. This is probably a well-born argument, but the, the style and system in which school is set up is to to set up for factory sport. workers. Sport. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. But most of our high school and, and education is our educators. Yeah. Social construction in general reduces in many ways. And, and there's like a massive amount of irony here. Inherently, the problems that need to be fixed in the world the answer to so many of them is creativity and innovation. And yet the social systems we've constructed almost inherently work to breed out creativity and innovation because it's not necessarily rewarded in common protocols, whether that's sport, whether that's going to school, like it's very easy to not fit in. And when you don't fit in, it's very easy to be perceived as a problem because there's like make no bones about it from a leadership perspective, it takes more energy, more effort, more thought, more intention to unlock people's creativity and to enable them to be their best than it does to tell them what to do. And so like, unfortunately, and the thing about it is, I don't know, as I've seen it, either model works in the short term. Either model can totally work and be successful depending on context and time. But over the longest term and on the biggest problems, one model where everybody's told exactly what to do and doesn't necessarily have the ability to be successful in ambiguous space. Um, it breaks down when things break down. Right. And I think Lamar Jackson in the athletic arena is a great example of that. It's like, when is that dude best when everything doesn't work? Right. Look at other leadership contexts. Where is Ernest Shackleton best when literally nothing goes right. And so it's like the best leaders, uh, are you know, able to perform in the most rugged of circumstance by virtue of their ability to work in a very abstract space that's poorly defined. Um, and that's kind of, in many ways, it's like, if we're looking at this, you, you know, like we talk about making an impact in this world and people think maybe that's just like helping people bang some more weights or something. Quite frankly, I don't really, I don't think anybody here gives a shit about that. That's not what we're doing this for. We fundamentally believe training and the art, the act of training makes better people and can provide you with a toolkit, a set of skills and a mindset that makes you more valuable in the world. And I think like that's ultimately what we're trying to unlock is like, how do we truly make a difference? And the way we make a difference is to empower, you know, like power athlete all the time, empower your performance. It doesn't mean power athlete tells you what to do. You never question the thing. You know, that's why I love so much about the power athlete community. It's full of questions. And then something even like train rug, it's like, we want to empower those people to make even better decisions. So, Hey, now I can swap my exercises. Now I can change my training on the fly. Now I have ways to adapt this thing. So it makes sense for me. Right. When Dr. Chris Morris is speaking at the symposium, he's talking about fluid periodization. The whole thing is about actually personalizing experiences for people because we're all on our own journeys. We're all going through our own shit. Life happens. And so how, how do we develop a set of skills and tools such that when shit happens, because we know it will, 
our response to shit happening is very productive, right? And so we talk about like change, adapt, evolve. We want you to see something happen. We want you to make a change in real time, be responsive, not reactive. We want you to adapt to that new context and then evolve and be a better, more resilient being on the other side. And I think whether you look at fluid periodization or any of the, these other contexts, that's where the world needs to go. It's a inherently a higher touch experience. It's much more creative, but it's actually more practical. It's based in reality. Instead of just saying, here's the freaking plan, do the plan no matter what. Don't question the plan. It's like, how do you know the plan's perfect? But then there's risk too. I mean, not that that's a bad thing. You know, like there, there's risk to that model, right? So now... Thanks to train heroics, some donkey can swap in an exercise. They could swap in um, what's funny exercise. Well, what do you normally do in the mornings? Fucking, you know, a peak. Oh, F word. Um, <laughs> Last one of the year. <laughs> so uh, calf raises. Yeah. Instead of cat back squats. Uh-huh. Right. They could. They could. They could like, hey, you know what? Field strong is in um, metabolic met- PAMC. Right. Uh-huh. And instead of the front squats, you which go are the worst, raises? you go calf raises. So they can do that, Ben. Thanks. And every field stronger, I guarantee you, who's listening is like, well, I'm just going to swap calf raises. Luke said it's okay. It is okay. No, it's not okay. <laughs> it's 100% okay. Uh, here's what I'd say. Uh, first of all, they're going to do that whether you, you tell them to or not. Right? <laughs> Leadership is not what, you, what they do when you're watching. It's what they do when you're not watching. Right. And mm-hmm. so are they bought in or are you coercing them to do it? And then secondarily, it's like, maybe he is on his own journey. Maybe he did want to do cast raises. Maybe that was more important for him that day. Mm-hmm. Maybe that made him feel special. Um, and who are you to project your own goals upon him? Cause I know when, what's best. Yeah. <laughs> no. And, uh, I, for, I don't necessarily believe this. Right. But to me, it kind it does, the freedom and fluidity. So for, okay, um, quick quick lesson on fluid periodization for listeners who may not have listened to the Chris Morris podcast is essentially Chris is monitoring um, recovery and readiness through various methods, right? And there's a dozen. And the method's really irrelevant. It's just that perhaps, uh, it's just that like you're doing it and you're making, you're considering real-time adjustments in training, whether it's volume intensity, movement selection as a result of low readiness scores or high readiness scores. And consideration is the key word here Mm -hmm. because there is also an element, and this is why I appreciate Chris Morris's approach to suck factor and team. Yeah. So So case in point, text comes in under recovered. Well, you'd be fine. You're Luke comes in under recovered because I'm out of shape and not as elite as you and And, yada, yada, yada. Drink rum on Tuesday nights. I wanted to taste what the crack and rum tastes like. But uh, go on. So, but the day may not call for a physiological betterment, right? It's about a psychological team building suck fest. Well, then you have purpose and consideration that Luke may not be as recovered as Tex, but either way, we're applying training that potentially is putting them into a ditch. But on the other end of this, is when we then do consider readiness on, let's say, the next day or day after yes, uh, to make sure that for, we're setting individuals up for long-term success. Now, the device he uses predominantly, I believe, is Omega Wave, right? Yes. Uh, but again, device agnostic. 
the point is doing exactly what you said, Ben, is like acknowledge um, and respond, right? It, do Like do something based off of something. So with, but like, that's to optimize, right? Yes. But you can still be effective and not optimal. Mm-hmm. By creating the rigidity in the framework. Mm-hmm. But being aware of what you're doing is what's important there, I think. Yes, and he does record and level. I was actually having a conversation with one of our Block One coaches, uh, Paolo. Paolo. He, he gave us a little, uh, I don't yeah. know, what would you call that? To remember. Either way. Anyway, but essentially calculated coaching without the tools of the Omega Wave and how Paolo applied it is his 5 a.m. class. They were showing up late. They were not in on essentially his warm-up approach, applying some of the power athlete deals. And so one day, he took it away. So he did not perform the Spider-Mans, the dead bugs, the seesaw walks, the power athlete approach that he learned to preparing his class and his athletes and just gave them right into the workout. And then they felt how worse they were performing and feeling and then into the recovery during their workday. So it was an opportunity for him to still apply a fluid periodization, but in a way that could help buy in Mm -hmm. and feel the investment and understanding of the warm-up for his athletes. Mm -hmm. Similar approach, but less uh, technology Mm -hmm. and more appreciation. Yeah, it, it doesn't, like, exactly. That's coaching, right? And coaching is the art and the science. It's not either or. There's there's no dichotomy there. Everybody wants to be one or the other. Like, use the tech, do the thing. If this, then that. If it's purely if this, then that, you're actually just as rigid as having a fully baked plan in the first place, right? There's always complexity in leadership decision-making and why good leaders are valuable is because they can take in all of those variables. And they can say, well, what is the context of day? What is our training intent? Where is this person at in their life, in their cycle, in their performance? Now, considering all of these factors, what is my decision? What choice should I make? Right. And Luke, you bring up a great point. Like, is there a risk in that? Yeah. There's actually risk everywhere. There's just as much risk not to do anything. (laughs) And, you know, like uh, our chairman, Andy Stevens, uh, professional investor made massive amounts of money making really good decisions. And he constantly tells us with our life, life is choices. And whatever happens to us is just the outcome of a bunch of good choices made well. And we're never, you know, like Annie Duke has a great book, Thinking in Bets. And she's a professional poker player. And within that thinking, like our choices are never fully informed. We never have perfect data, right? And our job as decision makers, as leaders, is basically to close that gap. So can I stack my odds by adding in quality data points, whether they're qualitative or quantitative, whenever, whether I'm using the coach's eye, whether I'm, uh, I'm communicating you know, verbally or uh, visually with my athlete, or whether I'm looking at readiness and wellness data. Um, all of those things are just data points that help me stack my odds to make a reasonably informed good decision doesn't mean it's the perfect decision. It's just the best one you can make given the absence of perfect information at a given time. 
And that applies like these principles apply agnostic of context. So whether like, frankly, in my product development world or a leadership world in a business context, it's the same thing. I don't deal with perfect information. We have so much data, it could bury us for years, but it's really hard to see what the signals are versus the noise and how do you separate those things. And so we try to stack our odds the best we possibly can. We try to build a thesis for what the right move is. We try to use the data to refute or inform that thesis. And then we say, hey, okay, let's measure and contain our bet. Let's make that bet. Um, but let's not in bet indefinitely, right? Th that'd be like writing an annual training plan and saying, it literally doesn't matter what happens. We're just going to stick to this thing. <laughs> and you're like, that's just not going to go how it goes. And why, you know, when Chris and I were talking, it just made so much sense. It's like, we plan at train rug. Like we, we did that mistake. We used to plan. I used to make like multi-year roadmaps and be like, this is literally how it's going to go down. And then the world would come around and just humble you over and over and over. And you just learn like, Oh man, I'm, I am a total idiot. I'm a total novice. That was such an ego move to think that it was going to go down like that. And so we had to right size our process to match our principles and to match kind of the universe that we were living in, which is we don't have perfect data. We're not totally sure how customers are going to respond to something. So we launch something to them and we ship all the time. Like we'll ship 450 times this year and we're shipping this much every time, just an inch of product every time. But with that, we get really, really, really crazy type feedback loops with our customers. And we just think of those feedback loops as listening to them. Like, give us more data. Okay, tell us how that's going. And the more inputs we get, the more we can make smart decisions. And I don't have to worry about making these massively right decisions. I just have to be right enough times out of the total times for the whole thing to work out. And it's like, can I be 60% right out of 100 times? That'd be pretty good as a better. Um, because over a long enough period of time, that 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 just works out. So uh, in the end, I would argue that that takes risk off the table because you are acknowledging the reality and true context um, for what's happening. But aren't you also, like, doesn't permanence, first off, I'm not, like we're talking about like agility in, in decision-making and like uh, rolling with it versus kind of sparring with it. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but where was I going with this? Like acknowledging the permanence of a decision could also inform your ability to like, like I guess increase the, the resources you would put into making it right. Versus, the, well, we'll just fix it when, when it breaks. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying one is better than the other, but it's, again, it's just about mindfulness and being aware of it. Mm -hmm. Are you picking up what I'm putting down? Yep. And like this, so the, for listeners, listen, go listen to Kara Miller episode, whereas me versus text and I won. Versus? Yeah. I thought but, we were working together. We were. the But go, going through the an inside joke that Tex and I have and like kind of a paradoxical um, cyclical argument of nothing matters, right? It doesn't matter. And then Tex comes with it, it fucking matters. It matter. Everything matters, right? So the episode 248. So the equivalency there is if everything matters equally, then nothing matters more than anything else. So therefore nothing. And like, it's just, but um, 
And what do we always come down to is like, it's, it's contextual, right? But if you have the mindset of everything matters, which is equal to nothing matters, well, nothing matters allows you to just run forward and do things where mm-hmm. everything matters could lead you to paralysis by analysis. Mm-hmm. But logically there's an equivalency between the two, you know? Mm-hmm. So I guess it comes down to in answering my own question and thought how you frame it up and how you're perceiving mm-hmm. and interpreting the scenario in which you have to choose a left mm-hmm. or a right or a both. And it's, it's also a matter of what are you committing to? Right. And I think that's something I've actually envied or not envied, um, appreciated about power athlete and something I feel like uh, we've always connected over. Um, and I see the same, even with somebody like a Rob Wolf, um, people who, commit ruthlessly to principles and are very flexible with their methods um, tend to have more success. So making sure that our choices, you know, are directly aligned to a firm set of principles that we have both intuition and data to believe in um, certainly is something we want to remain committed to because those principles exist for a reason. We establish them up front. And then we say, okay, let's, how, how do these decisions that we make align to the things that we believe based on enough data and experience? Um, and so I don't think it's, it's not like, it doesn't have to be a matter of like, uh, how willing are we to change our plan? It's like, well, how willing are you to change your principles? And that one, I would say, you shouldn't be that willing. You should have like really considered those things. Um, and this is something, again, like learning from Andy, uh, he really, he like drafts a principle and he just sits there and he stares at it and he rolls that thing around for like three, four months. And he's like, I'm considering another principle. And it's like, this thing really has to prove itself to him as something that's actually been resilient in a hundred different contexts. And then he's like, boom, add it to the list. And it's like, cool. Now you have eight total principles for all of your decisions to go through. Um, so the principles are few and far between, but the methods then can be flexible. Um, and so I guess making this more concrete, for any coaches or anything out there, it's like, yes, we want to adhere to basic strength and conditioning principles, right? We want to adhere to progressive overload. We want to adhere to variability. We want to adhere to reversibility, these different principles, right? And then we might have common intentions in specific contexts. So for example, if I'm developing a certain type of athlete, I might say, well, they need this much strength and this much speed and they need this much flexibility. And I'm going to kind of invest in each of those buckets with a certain set of resources, right? 50% strength, some amount of this, some amount of that. But the way I'm investing is going to be highly specific to them. And I need to be willing to change that because we all respond differently to different methods, right? Some of us, whether it's neuromuscular efficiency or whether it's just like your own physiological background or your injury history, there's all these different factors. So again, it's complex. And that's why you just can't say, take the same soup and serve it to everybody. It's like, yeah, I, I work with the same ingredients, but the way I mix them up is to the taste and likeness of the person I'm serving and based on their own dietary preferences. Because ultimately what I'm trying to drive is adaptation response. And I have to think about the long term of what I'm trying to take a person, that person, and then my own knowledge. But those are all just tools in the toolkit and, you know, being rigid in how you prescribe those things is just a fast path to not getting any progress. Right. And it's like, if, if we want to truly unlock people's best, when we say be your best, 
to unlock somebody's best is to get a full three-dimensional holistic understanding of that person's uniqueness and understand all of the positive attributes that they have and then figure out how do you take all of those and put them into the right space, time, role, whatever, and make sure that you're using every ounce of them as opposed to saying, Hey, play this narrow role. And they got all this extra stuff they could do, but they're put into this little box. You're not getting their best. You're just getting some of them, right? That's about effectiveness versus optimal. And so like, it takes a lot more nuance in that assessment and in your strategy and in your planning to really do that. Um, and I, like, it's a thing where you're like, uh, it's just easier as leaders not to do that. Uh, but unfortunately I think we're doing a lot of disservice to the people that we serve. Um, so at least on our end, it's, it's a more interesting problem to take on the leaders that we have here at train heroic that I'm honored to work with. Like they're brave souls that say, I want people's best. And they're not just discounting everybody's uniqueness. They're trying to figure out how to unlock it. How, how important. Okay. So let's, let's create team train heroic is just a bunch of, uh, you know, meatheads and you're their strength coach. Right. And in my opinion, you've got the right program principle based. You're putting it through there. There's a level of individuality. You're allowing people to really excel in their domains. And that I mean, that has to be a top-down thing, right? Like, did, have you seen your organization start to thrive, you know, going back to very early on? Like, you know, you wish you could have planned it, but really it's reflection and identifying your own personal values and principles and aligning that with guys like Andy, you know, mm-hmm. and, and the rest of your leaders in there. Um, so I guess what I'm getting at is for a coach listening who like cannot, cannot chalk up their own personal set of principles or philosophies, right? No philosophy is the bad one. No, wait, there is no bad one. There's bad. Yeah. What's bad? Michael Jackson. No. Ooh. The song. Oh, he's bad. Well, I guess in the whole thing about the diddling, (laughs) uh, But uh, there's risk uh, or misappropriation of philosophy could provide inflexibility. Philosophies versus principles, correct? Well, it's beliefs versus ideas, right? People go to war over beliefs, Mm -hmm. but ideas can be broken down, thought about, like Ben said with Andy, and then discussed and changed. Mm -hmm. And I totally, like, I'm with you on the, well, good and bad is extremely contextual, or even optimal and non-optimal, however you want to frame that up. And that's important to be aware of how powerful defining that is. Mm-hmm. But could you have built this team if you didn't have such a firm grasp and build this environment if you didn't have such a firm grasp on what's important to you? Um, probably not. And I would actually say I didn't build this team when I didn't know these things. Mm-hmm. Um, like I've failed. The biggest failures of training rogue are failures that I've made. And a lot of them were. That's distru- our shirt in the background. That's our shirt. The, wait, the one I'm wearing. No, behind you. Coffee shots and barbell squats. Who is that? Uh, that's Brian. Hey, be money. Brian. Shout out to Brian. <laughs> <laughs> um, and. Um, yeah, I, I would say like certainly it took me a long time to figure those things out. I've only f- 
I only started to figure those things out over the last couple of years. I'm nowhere even close to having anything figured out. Right. Um, and, but what I would say is like, when I didn't know those things, what I was doing was putting on a mask and being a leader that I was not, you know, I was going real hard and I thought that was a good thing, but I was doing air quotes leadership, meaning the leadership that I saw in the world and just saying, yeah, this is, this is what leadership looks like. Cause this is how I was led. You know, I had a football coach throw a chair at me. Uh, not a great way to get a point across. Did you right? throw any chairs? No, I just walked out. Right. It's uh, and that's where it's like, get, no. if you can throw that from Austin to here, I have a man quarter mile. I'm going to say, yeah, quarter. Is that a quarter mile? <laughs> um, and so it, it really depends, right? That's where every athlete is different. And what I would say too, is like, we're not sitting here and saying every athlete or every person in this world should go blaze their own trail. No way. There's a lot of people who don't even want to do that. I'm not suggesting that in the first place. I don't think every person in the world should be an entrepreneur or every person in the world should be a leader or every, no. So then what's the, to, what's the sterilized version of leader? Because I think it's valuable in the sense that these are leadership principles, right? Ownership. Ownership. Yeah. Tax. I think that's awesome. And here's what I'd say about train heroic. <clears throat> I would say two things. Um, train heroic. So Joseph Campbell, again, pulling this back to Joseph Campbell, his, his definition of a hero is a hero is someone who has given his or her life to something bigger than oneself. Again, it's this idea of surrendering the self, working to connect and give back to the world. That's what a hero is, right? And that can manifest in so many different ways, right? Right now, how many times are you doing that for your child, mm -hmm. right? How many mothers have done that same thing? How many soldiers have done that same thing? How many people here are doing that same thing, right? Like our engineers were like, uh, you know, last time I came on this podcast, you guys gave me a good ribbing about not having emojis. And our engineers are like, we will not let that happen again. <laughs> so they, you know, they burned the midnight oil. They were literally here till one in the morning and they had to, sh you know, go into maintenance mode. We don't like to do maintenance mode when we have high usage in the system. We don't want hundreds of thousands of people like not getting their stuff. So they're like, yeah, we're going to do this at night. We're going to give a couple of days heads up and then we're going to work all night to get this thing over. And that's putting a purpose bigger than themselves. It's easy to say, no, no, I only work nine to five. That's my deal. And they're like, no, 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 literally, we are going to make sure that the world, first of all, has emojis and the power athlete guys can't, can't bust you on that one. But like, um, who talks in emojis? It's a GIF world now. It's, it? I know. Like, Stay tuned. If it's not animated, I'm not. Yeah. Something. I don't want to type out the movie quote. I want to see my character mouthing it. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> a picture says a thousand words. A bunch of pictures stitched together mm -hmm. says a million. That's right. <laughs> So yeah, I think, uh, anyway, in terms of leadership, two things, one, an inherent piece of leadership is service to us, right? I presented that model at the power athlete deal last year where it's like, you know, the traditional model that we've been sold in society is one person sitting atop a bunch of people directing them in a command and control relationship An empowered leadership model a servant leadership model is one we ascribe to. And that means that the progress is being made between the leader and the people they're leading. It's the space between, and it's a collaborative effort that is advancing the common goal forward. And so I think that's part one is that leadership is about service. Part two is what Tech said, it's about ownership. And so within Train Heroic, we view every person here as a leader. There's not like, oh, those people are leaders, these people are not leaders. 
it's basically people who are at a higher le leadership level and then people who are in a technical or domain leadership level. So it's like, cool, you're, you run social media. You are the leader of social media. You take ownership over that domain. Anything that happens in that domain, you own, right? If I'm uh, an engineer, a junior engineer, and I'm working on a specific feature, I own the feature. I might not own the entire product. I might not know, own the entire system architecture, but I own that thing I'm building. And my ability to accept responsibility for whatever outcome happens based on what I've done makes you a leader. And the fact that what I've done is something I've done in service makes you a hero. And putting those two things together is really ultimately kind of part of our cultural bed, bedrock. I dig it. Is leader, is the term leader a polarizing title for people? Like not, not necessarily in train heroic, but let's think like broad, broad distribution, wide, a wide net, the normal guy, the trash man, <laughs> right? Dude slinging around in a, a big garbage truck, throwing trash in the, in the back of the truck, like which doesn't in my like granted i'm an outsider but doesn't seem like the worst job in the world you get all sorts like other like all sorts of treasures perhaps maybe you go by there's a brand new office chair in the trash now you got a new office chair like it seems great for a hoarder <laughs> but um so honestly tying it back you know just like tradesmen tradespeople do certainly i think that their quality of life could ramp in I'll call it the owner model, right? But when they hear the term like leader, mm. don't you think that puts like is put off? And then similarly, isn't that kind of like the buzzword now too that's driving that and driving a wedge between the how meaningful it can be? Because people want like leadership to me is aligned now with self help. Uh, I have a theory on that. Essentially, uh, we're all we're all essentially the same age, Ben. Um, yeah. am I, am I the senior person here? I'm you 37. Are. You are. Ben, how old are you? 33. No way, dude. Are you really? What'd you think I was? Ah, 34. <laughs> 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 no, I guess 35, like in between. I, I, dude, I've had no, seven concussions. I, I might actually be 37. I'm not sure. <laughs> his no, hip, I know you're younger. His hips on the other hand. Hey, oh, hips of a grandmother. Um, yeah. well actually now of RoboCop, right? RoboCop. Uh, no, I, th I still think grandma, but like grandma, RoboCop. Yeah. But down yeah. from great grandma. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. We're, we're improving. Things are getting better. Right. What? Anyway, tax no, leadership. Like, tell us. I, I don't know if we are entering this, this phase of buzz and overkill on the leadership. I think we are just entering that age in which it is just shoved down your throat. Cause think about mm. our, maybe our our fathers at this this point in their life when mm -hmm. they're all becoming their owning their own business the professionals or taking ownership of teams within their respective uh, industries or finally getting that that point in your 30s in which you own in your military career whatever they decided to do they are at that stage in which they are responsible for other people's performance and the livelihood at home so mm -hmm. I don't think it's an overkill. It's just we are entering that phase in which, oh, shit, life just got real because people are going to be looking to us for mm -hmm. answers. So it's maybe labeled as, as leadership, 
but it could be the this point in which we reach a threshold on our hero's journey where others become reliant on our actions. And let me, uh, first off, I'm on board. That makes a lot of sense. That's a good observation. But what I'm curious of is like leadership book. Ben, name a leadership book. I've never read one. You uh, uh, don't I know some. author Maxwell. Last name Maxwell. I don't know his first name, but he's big, like in the airport. John Maxwell. John Maxwell on the racks. John okay, so, Wooden on leadership. Okay, oh, so yeah, Wooden. Yeah, okay. And yeah. I, I'm not, I'm just trying to frame up some quantifiable info. What, mm. what, where do you find that book in a bookstore? Mm. Well, business or self improvement. Okay. So there's two types of like leadership content. I should, I'm trying to understand cause I don't know this stuff. Okay. Yeah. So that's why I'm asking these questions. I'm not like, um, going Socratic on uh, this. I, uh, I would venture to say more on the business section because self-improvement, it would be more internal. And this is just an observation. I can't tell you the last time I went to a bookstore or, and then business leadership is more external, you know? So what I'm getting at then is if we were to like evaluate book sales as just a piece of data, data, whatever, as leadership became a search term in Google, right? Okay. Do we see a direct spike in sales across and across what like demographic data is what I'd be data, whatever you want to call it. Uh, I'll just concede. It's not worth the fight anymore. Well, text. I'm taking the nothing matters. <laughs> no, it matters. Cause Ben said it multiple times throughout this podcast as data, but I digress. Continue your, you could take form. the Australian version of Darta. Darta. I'm in on Darta. Darta. Damn it. Darta. Damn it. Darta. I'm in. Darta's mine. Daughter. Daughter. Don't touch my Darta. <laughs> <laughs> uh, give me back my Darta. Um, <laughs> give me back my son. <laughs> that was the call. There it is. Mel Gibson. So, it, and I guess like, and that's a vicious loop, right? Because there's, you know, we're in a capitalistic society. People want to make money. I think people in general, let's call it authors and content creators, do believe in... It, it is the majority of people putting this stuff out there are doing it with a sincere attempt to help. Is that mm-hmm. fair or is that just to kind of peaches and roses? Well, it, it's from their perspective. They're painting it and the context is their, their journey, their hero's journey in business. And I love this, Ben, and maybe you can take a note from this. The owner of the Rockets, his name is slipping my mind right now, but he wrote a book. It's called Shut Up and Listen. And he owns an NBA team, so he's got to be doing something right. So what's the book about? I don't know. <laughs> Sounds great. I'm in. And everything, I yeah. guess everything I'm kind of circling around. So is Luke, is that a problem? Is that a problem? I don't know. Like, I guess I don't know. But I feel like it's putting the concept of leadership on a pedestal <sighs> and pulling it away from people who feel like they're not leaders. Right. And yeah. There's, there's, maybe it's the opposite, though. If it's if it exists in both contexts, yeah, it, it exists in a self development context. It exists in a business context. It exists in an athletic context. Is it possible that the principles of leadership can work generically across any of these contexts? And 
I mean, there's, there's always a case in which you lead. There's always a case in which you follow. It's not that I'm universally a leader and universally a follower. Right. I, I can tell you when I go home, my wife leads the deal. Uh, when I'm here, I'm leading certain things, but I'm also uh, following other things, right? And it depends on all of those contexts. And I think part of being a leader uh, universally throughout your life is being able to appropriately apply the principles and know where you are in a given context, right? And part of it is like, you know, this whole self-development piece, right? Our leadership inherently implies that you're following. There, there's something following, right? So to not be a leader in your own life would be to imply that you're following somebody else's. Which I think is fine with the context of ownership. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. So if you, like going to being the follower, which mm-hmm. in, in my opinion, because of the success of this leadership term and like, I guess, subject matter, now puts being a follower like it has a negative connotation to it, perhaps. I'm not mm-hmm. saying it does, mm-hmm. but I can see how it could. Yeah. Whereas the world needs Indians. The yeah. chiefs and Indians, the world needs followers. However, whether I'm a leader or a follower, ownership, I, you know, and that's Jocko's thing, right? Extreme ownership. That is correct. Mm-hmm. Power Athlete Radio guest alum. Right. I think that like, that should be the sizzle. That should be, that should be the number one subject, owning your whatever. But within that fluid periodization, depending on the situation, the scenario that you face, and then just, uh, I recall, I watched a documentary on essentially the schematics of a wolf pack and how there is an alpha, there is a beta and gamma and all these different rankings shift as this guy, the alpha, goes off on a mission or takes out, and then suddenly a scenario appears where there's a threat to your family, then mm-hmm. the ranks change mm-hmm. and one steps up. So depending on the context, the situation, who's there, it, it I, maybe it's in line with the ownership, but understanding different roles and what the scenario needs, then you mm-hmm. can step back, step forward, to step to the side to successfully survive the threat to be clear ben hang on to that thought when we're talking Wolfpack, we are talking nwo and wcw wrestling the wolf pack yeah we get Woo. it <laughs> right yeah who's the alpha of the wolf pack i'm a gamma just you know razor ramon i i didn't I didn't get into the... Uh, Are you kidding me, dude? Nah, I watch real sports. You kidding? The Razor's Edge. That's right. That's the call. Uh, <laughs> so, Ben, handoff. Um, Did I derail yeah. it? I think you derailed it. I think uh, <laughs> I've, that, I've been hitting the head too many times to, to circle around and remember where we were at. We were talking about wolf packs. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, I think it really depends. And, and I don't think like you know, a resilient system is inherently a flexible system, right? The more rigid our structure, the more prone we are to breaking. And I think especially in a lot of the context we're trying to drive as a, as a culture going forward, as a social engine, you know, the, the big problems we're solving are not like some layup thing, right? I mean, you look at the issues facing humanity, we have a very interesting situation. Uh, you know, people have talked at times about the greatest generation, right? And those people effectively were given that 
that name on the basis of the fact that their contribution um, was one of a magnitude which helped resolve a global level of catastrophe from happening, right? It's an interesting thing to consider because like our generation in many ways gets so much shit, right? Millennials get so much shit, Gen, you know, like these younger generations get a lot of shit and that's maybe a tale as old as time. But it's a really interesting thing to consider that is potentially the millennial generation, the generation which necessarily actually has to be the greatest generation. Because on a, on a frank matter, you know, the, the issues resolved by the greatest generation in the past were much more singular in nature, right? We had a global conflict. But right now we're facing not only global conflicts where more nations are armed to the point where everybody could blow away the world 15 times over. We're facing environmental uh, situations that are damning in nature, where like the world could quite reasonably be a hellscape in 30 years. We're facing social unrest and injustice and poverty and distribution of wealth that is unreasonable and unsustainable. So you're looking at not, not one, but an array of world-threatening, global-threatening um, instances, all of which are frankly human creations, right? Like none of those, th none of those things uh, exist without us making them. So, it, you know, humans are at once both the best and the worst thing in the entire universe because we make our own problems and then we just try to solve them. Um, and I think it's an interesting thing where it's like, we have to start to consider different ways to exist going forward. And as even a younger millennial generation, we have to really question like, what are we doing from a leadership perspective to make a contribution that solves these issues? Because they're highly complex, they're very real. There's no data that suggests any of those problems is a layup to solve. Um, but the good news is, we have all the resources on this planet to solve every one of those problems. It's a matter of us to, uh, it's a matter of humans working collaboratively, not competitively, to unify and align our resources to solving those issues. Because they're simply resolving issues. They're not like putting out fires that are like totally random. It's us against us. And so in that context, we both have to figure out a leadership model that's much more connected and collaborative, right? We have to unlock people's creativities to solve very complex problems. And I'm not necessarily sure a top-down model, whether you're modeling after the wolf pack or something else, like we build a lot of our models off of nature and nature doesn't have one model, it has lots of models. And there's a lot of systems out there today that are much more distributed systems. How do you decentralize decision-making? You know, as a leader, somebody who makes decisions, how do you decentralize it so that people make decisions in similar ways? So that when one goes down, it doesn't matter, the same type of good decision gets made, right? How do we also make good decisions that also reflect good character? And then how do we actually scale those things so that all of these people are getting developed in a common way? So that we don't just have like, you know, I think a, a problem with the perhaps legacy mindset of leadership or the one that maybe I understood growing up was that there's only a very, there's a very few number of people who truly are leaders. And the problem is if, if we all behave that way, the world that we create is actually not a very good one. And I'm not even sure it's a very sustainable one that we can all live in. And so we have to find a way to truly be connected and we have to find a way to resolve some of those complex issues and they require nuance. Right. And it's like, I remember growing up, I was very fortunate, you know, like, <clears throat> I don't know how the deal works 
uh, having been an educator, you kind of are like, okay, who is maybe uh, most extroverted or most vocal or tallest or whatever, but people, they, they somehow like just select leaders and you're like, oh, you're in the leadership group as a fourth grader. And you're like, what does that mean necessarily? You know? Um, but those people end up getting kind of invested in, I remember like going, I was like in leadership, little seminar things and all these different deals growing up. And I was very fortunate in that regard. But looking back, what's unfortunate is that everybody wasn't in those things. And that as a so society, we don't conceive of the value of every person being a leader and every person being empowered and every person having high character. And what we spend all of our time, energy and resources developing as somebody who's been an educator is like, we teach you to learn facts. We teach you how to follow rules. We teach you how to do these things that are frankly very replaceable and not very valuable in a world going forward. And I don't just mean economically speaking. I mean, value is in my mind directly proportional to your ability to solve problems that matter to other people. And we have no shortage of problems in this world. So we need to develop good problem solvers and we need to develop good leaders to solve those problems. So I have a quick question for the group and I'm going to come back to that before I forget. So the millennial thing, I get it. Like there's this broad brush stroke, which I don't necessarily agree with, but it's like, there's this stigma right around the millennial. Is that a global? I'm not saying it. I'm not saying it's unfair for one. Yeah. No, uh, is it, is it a global I'm just saying it has to be the opposite. Like are there, there may be a case. Are there Spanish millennials and German millennials and Russian millennials? Like, are, are, do, they, <laughs> do we all share as millennials the same shortcomings across the globe? Or is it just specifically like the U.S.? Do you know what I mean, Ben? Do you even know? Uh, man, that's an amazing question. Like if we know. were to, if we were to, you know, my grandparent or my parents were to go to um, Russia and sit down with like some distant relatives and just go, huh, millennials. Yeah. Would they know what the hell we're talking, like they're talking about? This is a great question. Well, I guess we're not going to answer it. Uh, maybe someone can email Callie at powerathletehq.com <laughs> with the answer. And not that it's really even important to me because the t like the broad brush stroke itself yeah. isn't what's important. And going back to like this leadership and follower thing that I'm just hung up on and hearing you talk, Ben, is like I'm more interested in the commonalities between the two and celebrating yeah. that, right? So yeah. whether you're being a servant or not, or you're a leader or a follower, to me, it's about contributing, right? Yeah. So it's like extreme contribution. Yeah. You know, it, like yeah. being adaptable, but understanding that it's the contribution that matters. Now, what to contribute needs should probably come from someone who knows what the heck they're talking about. Like, let's say, you know, I know how to, I don't know, raise livestock, right? So my contribution to the herd per se is like food. Well, how much, and there's like technical stuff I don't necessarily know. Well, there's a, a, someone who's more qualified to make the contribution on what I, you know what I mean? Like, so there's yeah. this circuitous dependency uh, that I think exists between the two roles and then go like... So getting into back to philosophy, okay. there's actually a term for what you're expressing. No. Yes. And I'm going to, I'm going to butcher this fixed mindset. Ubuntu, Ubuntu mm -hmm. philosophy, Ubuntu, Ubuntu. So this is a philosophy from African tribe, but basically like Luke's got blankets that he can con contribute to the tribe. Blanket man. I've got livestock that I can contribute in. And Ben has storytelling that he can contribute to the tribe. 
but then we all share. I benefit from what all of you share and you share, you benefit from what I have to give to the tribe, but it's this idea of community. So Mm -hmm. just where I heard this term, listening to Kevin Garnett describe the philosophy that was in the Boston Celtics locker room Mm -hmm. that they had back when, because they, they took on a, you, you as an athlete benefited my shortcomings. You benefited from my skill set. And basically they created a team of, of nine deep within that roster and then dominated for five or such years versus Mm -hmm. the, uh, freaking LeBron built team. So they went Mm -hmm. team versus individual and adopted this philosophy within their locker room. So that's where I, I picked it up. But I it's, believe it's also an open source operating system. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> it is, but that, that's the whole thing, right? You're talking about distribution of ownership with open source. That's yeah. something very beautiful. Nobody worries necessarily about getting the credit. Um, you do make your maximal contribution to a big community. It is about putting something over yourself. And I, I think there's, you know, there's something really important about that leadership model. And, and it is, it's an interesting thing, Luke, like is a follower necessarily a bad thing? It shouldn't be, but it does carry a connotation. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. And it's actually in many ways, a pretty humble thing to do, which takes a lot of courage oftentimes to do, because we're pretty much trained to just think about ourselves and be more important than other people. So, and ultimately I think it's, it's the, the seedling of becoming a leader. Yeah. Is being the two sides of the same coin. They yeah. don't have to, you can't divide them, mm-hmm. right? Without, without a leader, there's no followers. Without followers, there's no leader, right? Without a coach, there's no athletes. Without an athlete, there's no coach. Like those things are connected. And yet we try to divide them all the time. And, you know, what we're talking about with Ubuntu is this idea that everybody makes their maximal contribution. They provide their unique gift, their edge, whatever that thing is that they can do, Right. In Train Rogue, we call that being your best. Our buddy Logan calls that going right. These are all just different ways of saying the same thing, right? Campbell said, you know, the themes are universal. The inflection is to the culture. It's just different ways of saying the same thing so that you connect with a specific culture. And Ubuntu works because it's actually an African term and it originated in Africa, so it makes sense there. But again, the theme is universal. That's the same thing we pick up and learn from. And so I think we don't have to be super proud of our novel uh, way of saying it. It, it's just something that resonates with our folks. It gets them going. It gives them the juice, whatever they need to understand it. And that's fine because we all speak a certain language, but the language that we're saying, like we're telling that same universal story across these boundaries and we are building communities. Right. And it's interesting using like a thing like Ubuntu and in an arena of competition where you're saying like all of us do our best so that we beat those other people. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Uh, and so there's, it's, it's a very interesting consideration to make, which in some ways gets at like, what is the intent and purpose of competition? Right. To entertain. I think so. I don't know. Like, what do you think it is in that context? I think the, the end goal is to entertain. Right. Okay. Um, but zooming out like globally, what is the role of competition in the world? Innovation. Text. I'm slow thinking this one. Essentially, it is one, it's the, the expression of your best, to use your term, the expression of 
the best capabilities, abilities where, where it stands, but also you need that high level of focus and intent mm-hmm, mm-hmm. to expand your current capabilities and abilities. I like it. Ben. I, I don't know. Uh, I was asking you guys. I thought you were smarter. Um, I just, so how has that changed though? How has that belief? So what is your relationship been to con- competition, for example, growing up? What was your perception of it? What was your, what was your understood role within it? To win. Yeah. Right. I, and it's a, it's an interesting thing to consider, right? The mm-hmm. creator of the game Monopoly was actually trying to create a game where everybody won together and instead it was bought by Parker brothers and it was turned into something where everybody won against each other. And the basic intent and purpose of the game was to destroy everybody else and take all the resources. And so it's kind of a, I mean, Monopoly is a hilarious game and it's fun, but like it's all those things contribute to our social programming. And it's an interesting thing when you consider what it will require for us as leaders to work together to solve the problems of tomorrow. And we have to develop an understanding and role and relationship with competition. Like I can tell you personally, I am an inherently competitive person. I was born trying to beat people at literally anything you could beat them at. It literally didn't matter the context, playing ping pong, playing football. And when I did it, I literally, I I did it with such a full amount of ego in my heart. I was trying to destroy people and I wanted to feel a certain way after I beat them. And I have no problem sharing the fact that I think I had, looking back, a super unhealthy relationship with competition. And that was an inner struggle that I faced because I also have been born just naturally with a very big bias towards service and to making sure that everybody was having equality and justice. And that's a big part of my value set. And so reconciling the two coming from an athletic culture that told me to be domineering and to beat the crap out of people and then to even be trained in like, you know, business leadership and this stuff. And you see the kind of same thing happening. It's very interesting to consider what what it will be required of us as leaders to solve the problems of tomorrow. And those aren't necessarily the same thing. And when I think about being my best today, it's much more what tech said which is to say that I actually appreciate and value competition because of the way it makes me feel, not from beating other people, but because I know I need those people to play against me simply to take me to levels that I can't go on my own. Like when I go bang weights in my garage by myself, I'm ne- I literally will never PR. I just don't have it in me. I require, uh, whatever that means about myself, I require some sort of external stimuli to challenge upon me to be my best and to make me PR, right? When I play a football game, I pass better, I run better when other people are there that are highly challenging. And you put that right experience there and competition actually creates that flow experience, that rich context for maximal performance. And it's a pretty funny thing too, like even starting training rock, I used to think all the time, like, oh, you gotta, you know, you're trained in all these like pretty dominating ways, market capture, Right. And you have like salespeople who are hunting heads, like use like very kind of ruthless language. And in reality today, I view our competition as like a very valuable asset and portion of our journey because they keep us honest. Right. Like in my mind, we have a social duty to deliver better solutions that empower coaches to coach more athletes better, help athletes find joy in their journey of training. And our team might be complacent. We might not be our best unless we have other people running this race against us and running just as fast. If it wasn't easy to win this game, if it wasn't like, or if it was easy to win this game, 
we've kind of taken our foot off the gas. And so it's funny, like I, I remember I used to go to like events and stuff and I'd see people who are air quotes competition. And I admittedly, I'd be like, I don't want to talk to those guys. Screw those guys. And now, like, I think of them honestly as friends because I'm like, thank you for doing what you guys do. You push my team and myself to be better. You help us get up early when it's not easy to get up early because I know you're doing your thing and you're making progress along a similar mission that keeps us accountable to doing that faster. And it's, it's funny too, because through that lens, I don't like, dude, when I was six years old, I started playing football very early and I used to lose football games all the time. My first year of football, we won one football game, not a good place to start. And I played with all bigger kids than me. And I remember I used to lose the games and I would not talk. I would not speak for like a week. I was so devastated because for me, I was creating self-value by virtue of my position relative to others. And then I had an experience in high school where I think I truly started to, I had my first exposure to truly understand the value of competition where we were playing an opponent who frankly was like pretty equal uh, in standing to us in ability to us. Uh, we had a small team. A lot of people play both ways and we were down by 17 points at halftime. And I remember this like it was yesterday and we're down by 17 and we go into the locker room and you know, of course I just lose my goddamn mind because I'm a 15, 16 year old boy and I'm freaking out and I'm just trying to get everybody super excited. And we come out of the tunnel and play our minds out. We just go, we're just nuts. I mean, everybody's dialed in, everybody's focused, everybody's given their true maximal effort. And that, the whole first half was just a function of like effort and connection. Could we do it together? Where were we, were we working together? Were we doing our own individual roles to the best of our own ability? Were we sharing our gift? No. Then we come out the second half and we perfectly do it. And this is crazy. We score a touchdown with like 10 seconds left in the game. And I go to hold the extra point. And our kicker was also our wide receiver who had just run for like a very long touchdown. And he also played safety. So he's playing both ways and, you know, not like a perfectly trained athlete because he wasn't working with power athlete. And I go to hold the extra point and snap comes, hold the extra point. He kicks it. And normally he's like lights out on these things. But literally it's the most anemic, weakest kick that's ever been kicked in the history of football. And the thing pops straight up going end over end, like a hilarious Charlie Brown kick. And the thing literally lands on top of the goalpost, which by the way, this is an extra point. We're kicking the ball like 10 yards. And the thing literally rests on the goalpost and then it falls out. And it does not go in. It's like the most absurd looking thing that's ever happened in sports. And time expires and we lose by one point. And I am literally crying. I'm not like a person who cries often, but when I cry, it's like an embarrassing, loud, bizarre, and uncontrollable cry. And uh, I cry like every three years or something like that. And I'm just like sobbing uncontrollably. And I remember getting consoled by someone. They're like, it's okay. You guys did great. And I'm like, in my head, I'm literally thinking, I'm like, I'm not crying because I'm mad we lost this game. I don't even understand, frankly, why I'm crying, but I just participated in something that almost felt sacred where we were all doing this thing truly to, we gave so much of ourselves to whatever this silly thing was that I have nothing left. And I felt like I had just, and I felt like crying was the next 
natural progression of emptying myself. And after I was done, I was like, that felt amazing. I want to do one of those again. And I've seen then that I've played games where I've won and I felt like I lost because I know I didn't give it my all. And you're like, I was, you know, we were overmanned or some cheap things, some luck went our way. And I've been on the converse where we got the shit beat out of us, but he maxed it and truly gave our best. And it was like, like, I've seen that and not felt bad at all. And so I think, you know, our definition of success is truly doing that. It's being your best. It's maxing with competition. It's just being like competition exists and it's a good thing because it allows us to do that. And when we do that, we're giving our gift to the world, which is our social responsibility. And if all of us can do that effectively and we can reinforce a culture like that, we believe the world is simply a better place because everybody has such a unique that we contribute in all of these different domains. And if we're covering all those different domains, then a lot of problems in the world take care of themselves. And at Train Rogue, it's like we have specific bizarre, you know, you're like Liam Neeson. It's like we have a very specialized, specific set of skills. And it's like, well, we make technology and we're creative and we happen to like athletics and we like doing team sports. Oh, cool. Well, you should start a tech company. Oh, sweet. Okay, we did. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I, I think it's like my relationship with competition change something we don't think about a lot within society, but I think it's a worthwhile topic just to ask ourselves, like we assume comp because we've been told it is, or we assume it's a super bad thing because we've been told it is. And maybe it's neither of those things. It's just power. Power in and of itself is neither good nor bad. How you apply power and your relationship to power is what determines the value of power. And I think in some ways competition fits in there with that same thing. Like, hundred percent. It is contextual. And I, as you're kind of reliving that war story, I can think of times, you know, I, again, in youth sport predominantly where you have that, just that moment of like, uh, silence and static and win and lose and uh, like a terminal moment like that in sport, I didn't have it in school. Uh, didn't have it like anywhere else in life, but it is only in that sense of competition. Mm -hmm. Um, but what's crazy is people like there's people probably don't have that. They have no appreciation for that. And it's sad, you know, it really is. And I like, and I guess you could have that in an individual context as well. And I'm thinking of our friend, Adam Nelson, right? Like, Like competing on the, the highest stage at individual sport, you, you can still be, it's being overpowered, right? And out or outrun, we kind of have gone to that within the training context. Until you've been there, you don't even know what it feels like. And once you have been overpowered, outmatched, truly at the highest expression of your capability, you, you know there's there's a. It's kind of, you don't have you truly don't have the capacity to I think grow at a rapid pace. Or recognize it. Or just know yourself. Mm-hmm. I mean, like your truest self is the self that's applied everything you have. And it's like, until you know that, I just have to wonder, like, isn't there always this thing in the back of your mind that's going, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Like, it doesn't matter if you're good, bad, or otherwise, you know, like, there's always somebody stronger in the gym. There's always somebody weaker in the gym, right? If you go to the right places, there's always somewhere who can kick your ass. You know, like, but when you know that, you know who you are. Mm-hmm. 
And when you try as hard as you can, you say, this is what I'm capable of. And I think like, that's where you find like out there past the edges, way out where it's weird in the wilderness, right? That's the hero's journey. You have to leave the ordinary world. You have to go into the unknown and uncomfortable world. And people, you know, that's the stupid buzzword in fitness. It's like, get comfortable with the uncomfortable. And you're like, that's annoying. Is the but it's only, actually, it's real. Is the only way to, like as an adult, right? Going into like the 30s, you didn't play sports. Is the only place to experience this in your job now? If you want, if like there was someone out there who wanted to? Or do you How have to? Yes, I, would, I would say no. I mean, there, but the, I would can make it connected to physical right? Freaking going rock climbing or so I would connect it to something physical that is challenging that you have an internal belief of, I don't know, or no fucking way, but then you move and accomplish whatever that feat may be. Or uh, maybe skill building a fucking deck. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it doesn't matter. I mean, that, that's the but basis it, of flow, it right? Does, it's though. like being in that in that flow channel, right? It does. It does. To get the to, environments to reel we over, have. to put yourself in a position to reel over, sobbing, Ben Crookston style. Yeah, ugly sob. It, like, what? Where are the opportunities for that? For an adult asking for a friend. <laughs> well, you experienced it in pickleball this morning. Oh, stop it. Did I? What, I don't even. When remember. you lost? When? To Jordan and I. Oh, game two. Game three. We were on a team for two games and won. I, oh, yeah. I went three and zero. Never mind. Yeah. Okay. He blacked it out. Mm -hmm. I. So I, I agree, um, and I think to me the the short answer on that one is uh, performance. Right. The idea of empowering performance. I view performance as a in a very generic sense, which is. You know, you are stepping into the arena and you are finding a level of competition that fully challenges you to fully express whatever it is that you've got. I do not think that performance inherently has to happen in athletics, right? Public speaking, great form uh, for performance, something you do regularly, right? Um, I come from an art world. Like, believe me, you got jitters when you're going to a show. You have jitters feeling that and you were preparing like a crazy person right um dance you know going on stage and you've put in the work you've done the preparation now you're trying to move and display your full gifts to the best of your abilities i don't think uh you're limited in your capacity but i do think you have to define and participate in arenas of performance to find what that looks like and that means having stakes that are high it means developing skills in a real level. And that means finding that flow channel where, again, you guys talk about all the time, right? Boiling point, not breaking point, right? We can boil, we can break, or we can be bored. Those are basically the three levels. But we have to find arenas of competition or performance that put us into that space of challenge, right? You, I look at our engineers as a great example, right? They are in an arena of performance regularly. And they have, they have three operating agreements, they call them working agreements. The last agreement that they have is literally to put more weight on the bar. And it's a metaphor, right? It's the metaphor of progressive overload. So we're constantly, Brian's constantly finding challenges for the engineers that he knows are going to stretch them. 
And frankly, when they're in there, just like any of us being in the athletic field, sometimes they're like, I don't think I can do this. I think I'm going to break. I don't think I, I have the chops to get this thing done. And then they find something out about themselves and they develop a new skill. And so I think the domain is less important because the principles of performance, uh, the context of performance, the context of flow, the context of all these things, it's all generic. It's all the same. When you look at skill acquisition, it's all the same, right? We're creating a rich atmosphere for these things. Um, and I, I, Luke, I'm with you, man. Like, uh, I think a lot of people live lives and I think uh, Logan would suggest this and that's kind of a lot of his work in going right. A lot of people live lives that are not very fulfilling. I don't say happy, um, fulfilling lives that have deep meaning and connection to them because frankly, they have low doses of flow in their life. They're not challenged to their fullest potential. Um, they're not in a context where they can marry their skill and unique gift to whatever problem set they're working on. And I think the beauty of it is if you actually do that self-work, you do look at yourself, you say, Hey, what's my experience? What's my skills today? What do I bring to the table that other people don't bring? And guess what? Everybody has something. You just have to actually look for it. You have to think about those things and you say, okay, where can I apply that gift and create a context of performance that is going to pull it out of me? You can actually design flow exposures into your life every day. And I have them all the time. And so that's why my work feels meaningful is I can like, I remember working in other jobs and I would literally just stare at a clock all day and I vibrate in my chair, just sitting there like, when am I going to get out of this goddamn place? And I can tell you now, literally my days almost disappear in a troubling manner where I'm like, it's going too fast because I just, I have, I have work that focuses me and demands my attention and is, I find it compelling and interesting. And I'm again, just finding a context of performance that's useful to me but I don't find I don't feel any less fulfilled doing this than I do being on the football field. Mm -hmm. And what will, and don't like, I don't intend this to be like a handing out a life lesson, but more of like hey, on the horizon, Ben, and I don't know what your, your lowest plans are, but like context of those visions and like, especially work and fulfillment change significantly when there's a little one out there. Oh yeah. And that's what I've, all noticed I guess over the past four months is with little yeah. rubes is just like it, certain things have become really, really important and other important stuff doesn't matter at all. You know, it's, re it is really interesting shift uh, in that perspective. And like, even in the context of going right with Logan, like I'm, I'm excited to connect with him whenever I can, because, you know, to the best of my knowledge, he doesn't have a kid. You know, and then there is this interesting rock and hard place of wanting to be this amazingly captivating and like fulfilled individual and serving your purpose and values selfishly and realizing that you've got three kids and a wife who's got, you know, is terminally ill or has passed away. And like, you are those competing things? You don't have those luxuries and in, you know, they don't have to be, but it requires, I think a level of bandwidth. I'm handing off in a sec text, a level of bandwidth that you may not be available because you just don't have the resources to put the thought and emotion into that space to align them. Right. I don't but know. Maybe it's that because you're playing a different game and it's actually the ultimate game for you. 
right? Like, did you just move your field of competition? And I'm, I'm not saying this no, in like could. a corny way. No, yeah, yeah. You might literally be your best as a dad totally. and you might be like, my interest is pulled over here. But right? there's, there's other dads who like, I don't, they're like, I don't care about my kid. They no, don't get any of my attention. Which is sad. McCool can handle. In line with what you said, and, and this goes off, we have had this discussion and yeah. conversation before. Spoiler alert. And that is the importance of internalizing and understanding your gift. As Ben was mentioned earlier, like your gift is that you are in a position to suffer and suck to then get your kids to college. And then we, we talk about the generations right. that existed before us and our grandfathers surviving the, the great depression in within the United States. And then sure as shit, they didn't eat every day, but it was now in a position where we can be on this call to have this discussion. Mm-hmm. So, and this is why I go back to every, not everything matters, <laughs> but it fucking matters. Maybe it's not my ideal situation, but I'm going to keep my eye on the prize because there is a seed or something within my, a sparkle in my eye that may one day be in a position to just accomplish something great, but it's now suffering through this. And I go back to one of Walt Whitman's poems and Ben, you may appreciate this and the final lines. And this is also in dead poet society. And the, he asked all these questions of life. So the poem is, Oh me, Oh life. But the, the final lines, I won't bore you with the entire poem, but the answer to this question of life is that you are here, that life exists an identity, that powerful play goes on and that you may contribute a verse. So if you are having these feelings as a, a grown ass man, an individual that you are going left and you want to go right, understand that maybe the path that you are on that appears left, if we change our perspective could be right for your kids or the generation or that you're a school teacher and it's right for your kids, but it sucks mm-hmm. for you. Three lefts. Three lefts. you go all right. <laughs> That's Luke's book mm-hmm. coming this fall. And, and again, it like Ben, you're, you're on point. Tex. I don't, I don't think there's anything. So I think that's also uh, Luke. I think you bring up such a good point. I think there is a, an easy takeaway from some of that stuff and self-development and all this where like pursue your passion, do all this stuff. Like there's also an implied narrow lens by which people suggest passion. They almost say like your passion is inherently like, frankly, like uh, finding a way to make your hobby, your job. That doesn't necessarily have to be a true thing for one. Your passion also doesn't even have to be your job. Right. Like uh, I'd use my wife as a great example. Lauren has always struggled getting that projection out of kind of that whole self-help silly, silly like millennial world um, and being like, I don't know. I don't know what my thing is. And like, honestly, she just kind of opened up. She's like, I honestly, I, the only thing I feel like I want to be is like a mom. I want to be like a really amazing mom. And you're like, first of all, that's amazing. Jackpot. That's great. Jackpot. Uh, second of all, it's weird that somehow she's been trained that that's, that's all right. You're like, that's actually the most amazing thing you could possibly do in this world. It's also one of the most complex environments of leadership you could possibly engage in. And it's such a demanding 24 seven task that truly is being a hero, giving your whole self for something bigger than you. It's all those things, but somehow we've diminished certain contexts and made more important, like 
again, like this idea that you do this thing, then you tell the story of it on the internet or something. And then you, you ultimately, the whole thing is about getting your name out there and having a legacy and having some sort of, sort of bullshit acclaim, all of which are just made up things. Where your experiences and how filled you're going to be is based on your own local context and your ability to constantly be put in flow and focus so that you're not even aware that that attention stuff's out there. Right. The people that you see that are truly fulfilled are people who are not worrying about what else is out there. Mm-hmm. They're just like, I just love the thing I'm doing. And I don't care if other, other people like it. I don't care if people think it's important. I just happen to like it. I'm pretty damn good at it. And I'm just going to keep doing it. Which like, I feel like probably listeners, if they've made it this long, are like make up your mind, Luke, it's be, <laughs> but then that is like, couldn't that be a risk for complacency then? in the sense that, oh, it's satis- I'm just satisfied with what I'm doing. I feel fulfilled. But then what if there's runway to cover that leads to a higher level of fulfillment? Well, that's why you need a coach or competition mm-hmm. or a mentor. And this is part of the hero's journey as one of those, right? To face the challenges, to have a mentor, to mm-hmm. reach that potential. Mm-hmm. Difference between good and great. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, like uh, Csikszentmihalyi talks about in his book, Creativity, the value of a judge in creativity, or not the value, but the necessity. And that creativity, true creativity, which he defines as somebody's unique novel contribution to society that has a longstanding duration of value, uh, can only happen in an arena of truly competition because a judge or some sort of standard, some bar exists for evaluating the the value of that work. Right. And that way you can think of creativity as like evolution, truly manifesting, right? There's certain traits that get passed on their abnormalities that don't really stick within a species. And then there's certain traits that are truly creative that looked at a context, solved a specific problem. And those traits persist throughout time and they become adaptive and creative on top of it. And ultimately, like with creativity and a lot of what we're doing is we're trying to find spaces in which we can engage in which the standards and the context is very high. There's a certain amount of risk on the table and it asks us, it demands of us to be our best. And I don't care what that context is. It could be parenting. The stakes are obviously really damn high. They certainly feel high every day. And there's definitely some perceived judge, right? Like society's judging us as parents all the time. Our kids are judging us as parents all the time. We're our own self-critic all the time. So there is some level of performance that's inherently happening. And there's no days off, right? You have to get better rep to rep, day to day, just like anybody else. And some people are going to opt in to that context of leadership. And some people are going to opt out. Right. There's plenty of deadbeat parents out there who have no interest in their kids and therefore are not excelling in that, despite the fact that they might excel in other leadership contexts. Right. There's plenty of business leaders who are actually great business leaders who are terrible parents. It's possible. Same thing for even coaches who fundamentally want to serve and take care of people. Right. You see a lot of good coaches out there who are like, yeah, I don't give any time to my kids. I give a lot of time to my athletes. You're like, hmm, I don't know, maybe get that in check because maybe your athletes are seeing that. And the best coach you could be is one that prepares them for the world to become a better person, not just a better performer in a very narrow context that's going to invariably end, which is athletic competition. So what are the key takeaways for listeners? Like, what, okay. Can, in, I, can in, I give an antidote real quick? Yes. So quickly in, in line with this, uh, Ben's, Ben's comment there. So Ben, I'm giving you some time to think of takeaways. 
de- deliverables for our audience. Freshman football win. We had a coach that huddles up at the end and told us how proud of us he was. And he's like, I'm going to go home and make love to my wife. Nine months later, <laughs> he had a kid. <laughs> <laughs> so that's how he showed his appreciation for our performance on the field. That's funny, man. The, and I'm trying, I don't know how to hard bri- how to bridge from that. So I'll just do a hard left or right, whichever one's hey, better. Three lefts. Three lefts is like, I think one thing we didn't acknowledge on the show too is like, granted, there is context. And I think that there's three, for the most part, three universal contexts of like identity and ownership and contribution. One is like to yourself. The next would be to your family. And then I think Mm -hmm. the next one is like, and don't, for sake of simplicity, using three, uh, let's say your work. Right. Mm-hmm. And these value, the value streams that you lay out probably overlap quite a bit, hopefully, but they don't necessarily, and they don't have mm-hmm. to. And I think, mm-hmm. like you said, Ben, like, did you just move the playing field? Well, there's like three fields of play, you mm-hmm. know, in that sense. So with like, first off, acknowledging that I think is a big takeaway. If someone's like, if you, if you're like, man, I am wearing a mask. Right. And I want to take that because Ben, like you, where I, I wore that at my other corporate gig, and I don't think I had to. I felt like I needed to. Yeah, but I don't think I had to, and I often no nobody wants you to. Yeah, that's the craziest thing about this whole charade. Yeah, is that nobody wants you to be anything except for your very best self, mm-hmm. and yet we perceive that our role within society is to be just like everybody else. So it's a sad state of affairs. So with that said, <laughs> in acknowledging those three arenas of play. Like how, how do people, number one, realize they have a mask on and number two, maybe start this journey of know thyself, right? I feel like you're further along. You've, you've pushed me forward certainly. And you know, I appreciate that, man. Thank you. But what about people who are just like, man, I didn't think I was going to listen to this hippie bullshit, but I made it this far. I'm ready to take action. Dude. I'm glad we're engaging in hippie bullshit. Uh, I think, uh, I don't know. I, I, for me, one of the most valuable activities, pun intended or unintended, depending on how you want to look at it, um, is actually establishing like your own personal values, right? And the, the benefit there is when you understand what your personal values are, you can align and design a context of your life, right? Just your day. You're like, okay, how much of my day aligns to my personal values, right? And it may or may not inherently but you may or may not be able to adapt your context by expressing your own values. So like, okay, I do a job a certain way. What might that job look like if you're fully expressing your own personal values, right? Can you change the way you do the job? Is that possible, right? How many decisions do you make on a daily basis that align to your personal values, right? Just um, how do you use that as effectively bumpers and guardrails for your decision-making to say, Hey, I have five to seven personal values. They're these things. I've defined them explicitly because I've done the inner work to do so. Find a simple framework to do that. Then once you've done that, just use that as a check, right? Ask yourself every day, how did my decisions, this is something I was talking about with Jim Davis the other day, and he, he calls it practical mindfulness. How do the choices you make each day align to the goals you have or the values that you share? And just use that as a check. And you'll see plenty of times where you're like, oh, that thing I did or the way I did that thing 
definitely is not an expression of what I really care about. That's not who I want to be. That's not how I show up. Um, and so I think first and foremost, establish what you really care about. And there's pretty much, there's some easy ways to do that, Luke, like you and I have, have worked through that. Um, and then once you do that, just figure out a context by which you can apply it. And oftentimes people are not like wildly out of place. They're oftentimes like, oh, I can take my context and shape it up a little bit. Or I can design my weekends and spend my time differently so that I honor my values more often and I'm not feeling like my values are getting stepped all over every day and that my life's getting run. Um, I don't think like it's as radical as most people think. I don't think it has to be as crazy as changing your whole life or having some like midlife crisis type deal. I think it's pretty basic. Mm -hmm. I think every one of us is on our own unique journey and we all have our own social responsibility to be our best. And when we all do that and hold each other accountable to that and we're collaboratively in doing so, like we're just going to have a much better place. Then we can sing Kumbaya and totally be hippies. Yeah. Shirtless. Shirtless. Holding hands and with candles. That. Yeah. Yeah. Anything else, McQuilkin? There was a lot of takeaways. This is a great discussion, Ben. We should do this more often. I know. Can we ben, do it a fifth time, sixth time, whatever it is? I'm going for the record. You know, I talk to you, Ben, a lot more than I do Josh. How much How much have you, so for, I guess, introduce Josh, your partner in crime, to the, the listeners. Because we I talk to him quite a bit via email, but mm -hmm. we have the luxury of kind of going higher level. Uh, Josh is my co-founder, best friend and grounding force. I would say he's kind of a perfect foil to whatever I bring. So, uh, you know, it's, it's, you need balance, right? You need the two sides of the coin. You need the yin and the yang. Um, I'm probably the yang. He's probably the yin. I use, I need a lot of yin. Um, and so, uh, Josh, you know, oversees our, our customer team. And, uh, I would say his edge, his gift in this world is service. He's, I mean, literally I've never seen somebody who so beautifully displays and expresses service. And I think like we both carry that as a value and as a personal thing. Um, I'm much better at providing it and expressing it, frankly, on a one to many level. Um, I'm better at working across like a lot of people, but I'm not, or I'm good at working like in hand to hand combat. But because I'm constantly thinking about a lot of things, I'm not always good about thinking about one thing. And Josh is so much better at that. He has a deeply personal level of service. And, you know, it's funny, like um, I'll be officiating his wedding. And one of the things I've been reflecting on is, frankly, like Josh is the kind of guy that, you know, it's like I, I call him. I'm like, Josh is one, my best friend. Um, there's probably 30 other people who feel the same way about Josh. I don't think people would ever feel that way about me. I have like a very small number of people who would say that about me and that makes total sense. And I totally get it. And I don't feel bad about it at all. But Josh is the kind of person where he's going to have 300 people at the wedding and 150 of the people in the wedding think that they're his best friend because he can make people feel that way. And I think it's a really magical thing he brings to the table um, and delivers frankly on a day-to-day -day basis to our customers. It's pretty awesome. So uh yeah, you guys should have him on podcast. He's way cooler. Dude, I, I'm I'm game. <laughs> like, has he? Have you guys collaborated on this this level of kind of thought and value creation? 
Yeah, certainly. And Josh has also helped me grow so much as a leader because mm-hmm. he, uh, like me, has a very stubborn streak to him. He's a very principled person. He knows what he cares about. And because of that, like, good luck trying to get that guy to move when he doesn't believe what you want to do. And so, you know, as I'm trying to go through the wilderness into this unknown and uncomfortable world and try to figure things out, shining a flashlight into the dark, and I'm like, I don't know where we're going. I think it's over here. I think it's over here. He plays a very steadying role within that, um, mm-hmm. if for no other reason but making me move slower than I would like to move. Uh, so it's it's been certainly the most rewarding partnership I've had in a team sport context. I think a business is like the ultimate team sport. And, He's the best teammate you could ever ask for. Oh, maybe he'll listen to this. He's a good dude. I, I love that guy. Yeah. He's got a long attention span too. So he might, he might be the only person <laughs> who listens to the end. So I, I hope he hears it too. Well, thanks Ben. Honestly, great chat. I don't know. This is, this is in my lane and like in my, deep in within where my interests lie right now. So I appreciate you taking the time and hopefully our listeners, there's some people out there who align with it as well. So if, Anyone wants to, I don't know, maybe they, maybe someone wants to tap you on the shoulder and get more info. Where do you want them to reach out to? Um, they could hit me up on the internet. Um, my email, I keep plenty open, right? We're just like any other startup mm-hmm. first name at brand name. So Ben at trainrogue.com. <laughs> I don't really care who has it. Uh, yeah. I like to talk to our customers and the people we serve. Um, I would say on Instagram too, I am a very reluctant poster but I, I think I'm going to start to share some of the things our team is working on in particular, because I think our team's pretty, pretty amazing. And what the yeah. work they're doing is very special. So uh, beyond that, I would say if there's coaches and athletes out there who have not yet gotten involved, who have not yet bought into our vision. Get uh, yeah, I, I don't say that in a selfish way, truly. Um, there have been plenty of years where we're, we're definitely faking it till we made it. Like, as we talked about earlier, there are plenty of years where we just didn't have enough resources, enough know-how, enough skill, enough team dynamic, whatever it was. Um, and I couldn't be more excited heading into 2020, knowing the things that this team's going to be tackling, the challenges they'll take on, um, that I truly believe will not only be good tools, air quotes, mm-hmm. um, but actually are going to create a new path specifically for coaches that is far more sustainable um, and has the potential to actually change an industry. That's right. I'm with you because I, I know a little bit behind the curtains and I've seen, just seen, I can see the trend line, man. I can see the trend line. And, you know, we talk, I guess for our listeners, we're probably in some sort of communication with Train Heroic every single day with somebody, right? Yeah. Top down. So I, I just know where you guys are going. I'm excited for it because our success, our success paths are like in parallel. Right. Um, and if you're a gym owner, like, so if you're a gym owner, get on it, you can deliver it to your clients. If you're a personal trainer, get on it. You can push it to your clients. Like there's so much opportunity. I think it's the way it needs to go. And it's like, if you're an athlete, you would want this level of insight and track in my opinion, uh, and ability of logging to track your trend lines and your success and your progress. It's just too easy. It's a no brainer dude in my mind. Yeah, I definitely see I'm biased, though. now that I'm thinking about it in terms of an, a high school athlete and creating possibilities and opportunities, recruiting is such a mess, right? And you essentially can log and track your workouts and show trend sure. lines and progress that highlight your abilities, right? Yeah, so imagine, that, I mean, that's a great point. Show them the summary screen, right? 
Yeah. So an opportunity to create some doors for yourself if you are a high school. I don't know if there's any high schoolers listening to this. But will, well, maybe. Well, yeah. TC was in high school when he listened. Ah, uh, true. And now that we're not no longer an explicit podcast, since Luke stopped cursing. You said the F word three times. No, I didn't. <laughs> I said, I almost said it twice. Family, friends, Either way, but football. That's something to consider, Ben. I yeah. don't know. Maybe a uh, changing the direct- trajectory of the recruiting market as it mm-hmm. changes now that people can get paid. Who? Paid. Getting people paid. Well, yeah. Spe- speaking of paid, let's get to work. Thanks again, Ben. Thank you, guys. Appreciate you. Yeah, and thank you, Power Athlete Nation, for listening to another episode of the Premier Podcast in Strength and Conditioning. Ing, 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 ing. 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 Yeah, thank you, Ben. Good day, fellas. Bye. 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 Now it's time for you to empower your performance. That's right. You can contact Ben Crookston at ben at trainheroic.com. And if you haven't used Train Heroic, shame on you. I'm a literal tech idiot, and even I have found it to be one of the easiest and comprehensive ways to track training. Go to the website, get signed up, and then demand the integration of GIFs. Until next time, bye!